Section 22 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 22, Chapter 67, Part 1. Chapter 67, Charles II. The English nation, ever since the fatal league with France, had entertained violent jealousies against the court, and the subsequent measures adopted by the king had tended more to increase than cure the general prejudices. Some mysterious design was still suspected in every enterprise and profession. Arbitrary power and popery were apprehended as the scope of all projects. Each breath or rumor made the people start with anxiety. Their enemies, they thought, were in their very bosom, and had gotten possession of their sovereign's confidence. While in this timorous, jealous disposition, the cry of a plot all on a sudden struck their ears. They were wakened from their slumber, and like men affrightened and in the dark, took every figure for a spectre. The terror of each man became the source of terror to another, and a universal panic being diffused, reason and argument and common sense and common humanity lost all influence over them. From this disposition of men's minds, we are to account for the progress of the popish plot, and the credit given to it, an event which would otherwise appear prodigious and altogether inexplicable. On the 12th of August, one Kirby, a chemist, accosted the king as he was walking in the park. Sir, said he, keep within the company. Your enemies have a design upon your life, and you may be shot in this very walk. Being asked the reason of these strange speeches, he said that two men called Grove and Pickering had engaged to shoot the king, and Sir George Wakeman, the queen's physician, to poison him. This intelligence, he added, had been communicated to him by Dr. Tongue, whom, if permitted, he would introduce to his majesty. Tongue was a divine of the Church of England, a man active, restless, full of projects, void of understanding. He brought papers to the king, which contained information of a plot, and were digested into forty-three articles. The king, not having leisure to peruse them, sent them to the treasurer, Danby, and ordered the two informers to lay the business before that minister. Tongue confessed to Danby that he himself had not drawn the papers, that they had been secretly thrust under his door, and that, though he suspected, he did not certainly know who was the author. After a few days he returned and told the treasurer that his suspicions, he found, were just, and that the author of the intelligence, whom he had met twice or thrice in the street, had acknowledged the whole matter, and had given him a more particular account of the conspiracy, but desired that his name might be concealed, being apprehensive lest the papist should murder him. The information was renewed with regard to Grove's and Pickering's intentions of shooting the king, and Tongue even pretended that, at a particular time, 
they were to set out for Windsor with that intention. Orders were given for arresting them as soon as they should appear in that place. But though this alarm was more than once renewed, some frivolous reasons were still found by tongue for their having delayed the journey. And the king concluded, both from these evasions and from the mysterious artificial manner of communicating the intelligence, that the whole was an imposture. Tongue came next to the treasurer, and told him that a packet of letters, written by Jesuits concerned in the plot, was that night to be put into the post-house for Windsor, directed to Benefield, a Jesuit, confessor to the duke. When this intelligence was conveyed to the king, he replied that the packet mentioned had a few hours before been brought to the duke by Benefield, who said that he suspected some bad design upon him that the letters seemed to contain matters of a dangerous import, and that he knew them not to be the handwriting of the persons whose names were subscribed to them. This incident still further confirmed the king in his incredulity. The matter had probably slept forever, had it not been for the anxiety of the duke, who, hearing that priest and Jesuits, and even his own confessor, had been accused, was desirous that a thorough inquiry should be made by the council into the pretended conspiracy. Kirby and Tongue were inquired after, and were now found to be living in close connection with Titus Oates, the person who was said to have conveyed the first intelligence to Tongue. Oates affirmed that he had fallen under suspicion with the Jesuits, that he had received three blows with a stick and a box on the ear from the provincial of that order for revealing their conspiracy and that overhearing them speak of their intentions to punish him more severely he had withdrawn and concealed himself this man in whose breast was lodged a secret involving the fate of kings and kingdoms was allowed to remain in such necessity that Kirby was obliged to supply him with daily bread, and it was a joyful surprise to him when he heard that the council was at last disposed to take some notice of his intelligence. But as he expected more encouragement from the public than from the king or his ministers, he thought proper, before he was presented to the council, to go with his two companions to Sir Edmondsbury Godfrey, a noted and active justice of peace and to give evidence before him of all the articles of the conspiracy. The wonderful intelligence which Oates conveyed both to Godfrey and the council, and afterwards to the Parliament, was to this purpose. The Pope, he said, on examining the matter in the Congregation de Propaganda, had found himself entitled to the possession of England and Ireland on account of the heresy of prince and people, and had accordingly assumed the sovereignty of these kingdoms. This supreme power he had thought proper to delegate to the Society of Jesuits, and D'Oliva, general of that order, in consequence of the papal grant, had exerted every act of regal authority, and particularly had supplied, by commissions under the seal of the Society, all the chief offices, both civil and military. Lord Arundel was created Chancellor, Lord Powis Treasurer, Sir William Godolphin Privy Seal, Coleman Secretary of State, Langhorne Attorney General, Lord Ballasis General of the Papal Army, Lord Peters Lieutenant General, Lord Stafford Paymaster, 
and inferior commissions signed by the provincial of the jesuits were distributed all over england all the dignities too of the church were filled and many of them with spaniards and other foreigners the provincial had held a consult of the jesuits under his authority where the king whom they appropriately called the black bastard was solemnly tried and condemned as a heretic and a resolution taken to put him to death father lachie for so this great plotter and informer called father lachaise the noted confessor of the french king had consigned in london ten thousand pounds to be paid to any man who should merit it by this assassination a spanish provincial had expressed like liberality the prior of the benedictines was willing to go the length of six thousand the dominicans approved of the action but pleaded poverty ten thousand pounds had been offered to sir george wakeman the queen's physician who demanded fifteen thousand as a reward for so great a service his demand was complied with and five thousand had been paid him by advance lest his means should fail four irish ruffians had been hired by the jesuits at the rate of twenty guineas apiece to stab the king at windsor and coleman secretary to the late duchess of york had given the messenger who carried them orders a guinea to quicken his diligence grove and pickering were also employed to shoot the king with silver bullets the former was to receive the sum of fifteen hundred pounds the latter being a pious man was to be rewarded with thirty thousand masses which estimating masses at a shilling apiece amounted to a like value pickering would have executed his purpose had not the flint at one time dropped out of his pistol at another time the priming conyers the jesuit had bought a knife at the price of ten shillings which he thought was not dear considering the purpose for which he intended it to wit stabbing the king letters of subscription were circulated among the catholics all over england to raise a sum for the same purpose no less than fifty jesuits had met in may last at the white horse tavern where it was unanimously agreed to put the king to death this synod did afterwards for more convenience divide themselves into many lesser cabals or companies and oates was employed to carry notes and letters from one to another all tending to the same end of murdering the king he even carried from one company to another a paper in which they formally expressed their resolution of executing that deed and it was regularly subscribed by all of them a wager of a hundred pounds was laid and stakes made that the king should eat no more christmas pies in short it was determined to use the expression of a jesuit that if he would not become r c roman catholic he should no longer be c r charles rex the great fire of london had been the work of the jesuits who had employed eighty or eighty-six persons for that purpose and had expended seven hundred fireballs but they had a good return for their money for they had been able to pilfer goods from the fire to the amount of fourteen thousand pounds the jesuits had also raised another fire on st margaret's hill whence they had stolen goods to the value of two thousand pounds another at southwark and it was determined in like manner to burn all the chief cities in england a paper model was already framed for the firing london 
the stations were regularly marked out where the several fires were to commence and the whole plan of operations were so concerted that precautions were taken by the jesuits to vary their measures according to the variation of the wind fireballs were familiarly called among them toxbury mustard pills and were said to contain a notable biting sauce in the great fire it had been determined to murder the king but he had displayed such diligence and humanity in extinguishing the flames that even the jesuits relented and spared his life besides these assassinations and fires insurrections rebellions and massacres were projected by that religious order in all the three kingdoms there were twenty thousand catholics in london who would rise in four-and-twenty hours or less and jennison a jesuit said that they might easily cut the throats of a hundred thousand protestants eight thousand catholics had agreed to take arms in scotland ormond was to be murdered by four jesuits a general massacre of the irish protestants was concerted and forty thousand black bills were already provided for that purpose coleman had remitted two hundred thousand pounds to promote the rebellion in ireland and the french king was to land a great army in that island poole who wrote the synopsis was particularly marked out for assassination as was also dr stillingfleet a controversial writer against the papists burnet tells us that oates paid him the same compliment after all this havoc the crown was to be offered to the duke but on the following conditions that he receive it as a gift from the pope that he confirm all the papal commissions for offices and employments that he ratify all past transactions by pardoning the incendiaries and the murderers of his brother and of the people and that he consent to the utter extirpation of the protestant religion if he refused these conditions he himself was immediately to be poisoned or assassinated to pot james must go according to the expression ascribed by oates to the jesuits oates the informer of this dreadful plot was himself the most infamous of mankind he was the son of an anabaptist preacher chaplain to colonel pride but having taken orders in the church he had been settled in a small living by the duke of norfolk he had been indicted for perjury and by some means had escaped he was afterwards a chaplain on board the fleet whence he had been dismissed on complaint of some unnatural practices not fit to be named he then became a convert to the catholics but he afterwards boasted that his conversion was a mere pretense in order to get into their secrets and to betray them he was sent over to the jesuits college at st omers and though above thirty years of age he there lived some time among the students he was dispatched on an errand to spain and thence returned to st omers where the jesuits heartily tired of their convert at last dismissed him from their seminary it is likely that from resentment of this usage as well as from want and indigence he was induced in combination with tongue to contrive that plot of which he accused the catholics this abandoned man when examined before the council betrayed his impostures in such a manner as would have utterly discredited the most consistent story and the most reputable evidence while in spain he had been carried he said to don john 
who promised great assistance to the execution of the Catholic designs. The king asked him what sort of a man Don John was. He answered, a tall, lean man, directly contrary to truth, as the king well knew. He totally mistook the situation of the Jesuits' college at Paris. Though he pretended great intimacies with Coleman, he knew him not when placed very near him, and had no other excuse than that his sight was bad in candlelight. He fell into like mistakes with regard to Wakeman. Notwithstanding these objections, great attention was paid to Oates' evidence, and the plot became very soon the subject of conversation, and even the object of terror to the people. The violent animosity which had been excited against the Catholics in general made the public swallow the grossest absurdities when they accompanied an accusation of those religionists. And the more diabolical any contrivance appeared, the better it suited the tremendous idea entertained of a Jesuit. Danby, likewise, who stood in opposition to the French and Catholic interest at court, was willing to encourage every story which might serve to discredit that party. By his suggestion, when a warrant was signed for arresting Coleman, there was inserted a clause for seizing his papers, a circumstance attended with the most important consequences. Coleman, partly on his own account, partly by orders from the Duke, had been engaged in a correspondence with Father Lachaise, with the Pope's nuncio at Brussels, and with other Catholics abroad, and being himself a fiery zealot, busy and sanguine, the expressions in his letters often betrayed great violence and indiscretion. His correspondence during the years 1674, 1675, and part of 1676 was seized, and contained many extraordinary passages. In particular, he said to Lachaise, We have here a mighty work upon our hands, no less than the conversion of three kingdoms, and by that perhaps the utter subduing of a pestilent heresy, which has a long time domineered over a great part of this northern world. There were never such hopes of success since the days of Queen Mary, as now in our days. God has given us a prince, meaning the duke, who is become, may I say, a miracle, zealous of being the author and instrument of so glorious a work but the opposition we are sure to meet with is also like to be great so that it imports us to get all the aid and assistance we can in another letter he said i can scarce believe myself awake or the real thing when i think of a prince in such an age as we live in converted to such a degree of zeal and piety as not to regard anything in the world in comparison of God's almighty glory, the salvation of his own soul, and the conversion of our poor kingdom. In other passages, the interest of the crown of England, those of the French king, and those of the Catholic religion, are spoken of as inseparable. The duke is also said to have connected his interest unalterably with those of Louis. The king himself, he affirms, is always inclined to favor the Catholics, when he may do it without hazard. Money, Coleman adds, cannot fail of persuading the king to anything. There is nothing it cannot make him do, were it ever so much to his prejudice. 
it has such an absolute power over him that he cannot resist it logic built upon money has in our court more powerful charms than any other sort of argument for these reasons he proposed to father lachaise that the french king should remit the sum of three hundred thousand pounds on condition that the parliament be dissolved a measure to which he affirmed the king was of himself sufficiently inclined were it not for his hopes of obtaining money from that assembly the parliament he said had already constrained the king to make peace with holland contrary to the interest of the catholic religion and of his most christian majesty and if they should meet again they would surely engage him further even to the making of war against france it appears also from the same letters that the assembling of the parliament so late as april in the year sixteen seventy five had been procured by the intrigues of the catholic and french party who thereby intended to show the dutch and their confederates that they could expect no assistance from england when the contents of these letters were publicly known they diffused the panic with which the nation began already to be seized on account of the popish plot men reasoned more from their fears and their passions than from the evidence before them it is certain that the restless and enterprising spirit of the catholic church particularly of the jesuits merits attention and is in some degree dangerous to every other communion such zeal of proselytism actuates that sect that its missionaries have penetrated into every nation of the globe and in one sense there is a popish plot perpetually carrying on against all states protestant pagan and mohammedan it is likewise very probable that the conversion of the duke and the favor of the king had inspired the catholic priest with new hopes of recovering in these islands their lost dominion and gave fresh vigor to that intemperate zeal by which they are commonly actuated their first aim was to obtain a toleration and such was the evidence they believed of their theological tenets that could they but procure entire liberty they must infallibly in time open the eyes of the people after they had converted considerable numbers they might be enabled they hoped to reinstate themselves in full authority and entirely to suppress that heresy with which the kingdom had so long been infected though these dangers to the protestant religion were distant it was justly the object of great concern to find that the heir of the crown was so blinded with bigotry and so deeply engaged in foreign interests and that the king himself had been prevailed on from low interest to hearken to his dangerous insinuations very bad consequences might ensue from such perverse habits and attachments nor could the nation and parliament guard against them with too anxious a precaution but that the roman pontiff could hope to assume the sovereignty of these kingdoms a project which even during the darkness of the eleventh and twelfth centuries would have appeared chimerical that he should delegate this authority to the jesuits that order in the romish church which was the most hated that a massacre could be attempted of the protestants who surpassed the catholics a hundredfold and were invested with the whole authority of the state that the king himself was to be assassinated and even the duke 
the only support of their party. These were such absurdities as no human testimony was sufficient to prove, much less the evidence of one man, who was noted for infamy, and who could not keep himself every moment from falling into the grossest inconsistencies. Did such intelligence deserve even so much attention as to be refuted, it would appear that Coleman's letters were sufficient alone to destroy all its credit. For how could so long a train of correspondence be carried on by a man so much trusted by the party, and yet no traces of insurrections, if really intended, of fires, massacres, assassinations, invasions, be ever discovered in any single passage of these letters? But all such reflections, and many more equally obvious, were vainly employed against that general prepossession with which the nation was seized. Oates' plot and Coleman's were universally confounded together, and the evidence of the latter being unquestionable, the belief of the former, aided by the passions of hatred and of terror, took possession of the whole people. End of section 22, chapter 67, part 1. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.